at Matthew uh, chapter 18, and uh, we've been studying through uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, from, since uh, Christmas, and um, one of the things that we do every year in our church is from Christmas through Easter and then to Pentecost, is usually in the end of May, we always study a portion of one of the Gospels that talks about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we've been looking at the last few years of the Gospel of Matthew. The first year, two years ago, we, we looked at the first seven chapters. Last year, we looked from chapters 8 to 13. This year, we're looking from chapters four, chapter 14 to chapter 19. And the Gospel of Matthew is structured around five discourses, five sermons that Jesus gives throughout the Gospel. The first one, the most famous, is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. We looked at that two years ago. Last year, we looked at the the sermon in chapter 10 on mission and his sermon in, in chapter 13 on the parables of the kingdom. We're just starting the fourth of those discourses in uh, Matthew chapter 18. And uh, it turns out that uh, this is talking about life in the church, and Jesus' first topic in there is talking about children. And so that's what we're going to be uh, talking about this morning. And so hear God's word to you. We're going to be looking at the first 14 chapters, uh, first 14 verses of chapter 18, and then we're going to skip ahead into just dip into chapter 19, a few verses that are on the same topic, and we're going to talk about those as well. So hear God's word to you. This is Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he uh, put in the midst, uh, and calling to him a child, he put in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for It is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand causes your foot, or I'm sorry, and if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And then skipping over into uh, chapter 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we need your Spirit to guide us into all truth. Would you come and teach us 
bring your light to this passage and apply these words into our individual lives, into our families, into our church as a whole, and into our our life among this community around us. And uh, we thank you for your love and your challenge in our lives. And would you just uh, teach us through your grace now? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at this first section of Jesus' uh, fourth discourse, and it turns out that he opens it by a lengthy section talking about children. And, you know, I really, I love how he gets into the topic of children because, you know, if you've been with us the last few weeks as we've been going through Matthew, there have been a number of episodes highlighting uh, Jesus' disciple Peter. And, you know, a few, several weeks ago we saw the, the passage where Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter has this great line where he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but this has been revealed by my Father. And he says, on, you know, on this rock I'm going to build my church. I'm giving you, to you the keys of the kingdom. And, you know, this, this, uh, you know, this great uh, accommodation of, uh, of sorry, I'm like, cannot talk today. Um, but, you know, celebrating Peter. And then in the next passage, uh, Peter goes up on the mountain with uh, Jesus, and Jesus is transfigured before him. And Peter gets to behold uh, Jesus' glory. It's a rare glimpse. Only three people got to glimpse that. And then, and then uh, all these critics come and, you know, say, is, does Jesus pay this temple tax? And Jesus tells Peter to go and get a fish out of the sea, and there's gonna, the temple tax will be in there. And he says, go and pay it for me and for you. So Jesus pays for Peter. And so all these things are happening with Peter. And so when you come to chapter 18, and the disciples, it says in verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What's the obvious answer? Well, it must be Peter. Peter must be the greatest. Uh, wrong. Not Peter. It's not Peter. It's not this Peter who's, who's had all this wisdom and, uh, and, you know, and got to see Jesus in his glory. This is what Jesus says, verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. It's this great esteeming of the value of children in Jesus' kingdom. It's beautiful words. And, uh, you know, and this is, of course, an important topic for us, not simply because we have kids running around all over the place in our church, and we have lots of children, um, but uh, because also in this manner, this Jesus celebrating and loving of children, that makes us as Christians a counterculture. I've, I've actually just been reading this book called uh, How Civilizations Die, which is a really interesting book that talks about uh, many cultures, current cultures right now, but also historically, how different civilizations have died. And this author is talking about how, you know, in the, in the ancient world, the Greeks, um, how their civilization decayed was because they, uh, they had traditionally been a, a farming culture. And when you're farming, you want to have children because they're going to help you work on the farm. They're valuable to you. But as the Greeks became more wealthy and they were concentrating their wealth, 
they didn't want to have children because when you have children, you have more heirs. And then you're breaking up the wealth, and so you can't concentrate your wealth and your power as much. And so they discouraged having children. So they had less and less children. They killed many of the, you know, many of the children they were having, especially the girls. And so there was no women, and the population just declined steeply, and, uh, and the civilization died. And uh, they were destroyed by the Romans. And so um, this is, this, the same thing happened with the Romans. And what this author was saying is actually the same thing it has, uh, is happening in, uh, in the Western world now, in Western Europe. Fertility rates are in steep decline in Eastern Europe. Um, and actually, even in some nations, uh, Islamic nations, uh, actually Iran, I was reading, was, has in the last generation had the steepest decline in fertility rate that any nation has ever seen in history, just totally plummeting. And the reason for this is because when people encounter the modernity, the modern world, the modern idea of life is all about the individual, right? It's not about building up your clan. It's not about building up your extended family and supporting your extended family so you should have children. It's about your personal fulfillment, about fulfilling your dreams. And when life becomes about that, children become less important because you say, you know, well, how are children going to help me fulfill my dreams? Well, you know, they're expensive, and they're going to, you know, cause problems with me in my pursuit of my career. And so modern people do not have children, and, and they haven't been having children. Not, there's not, not even a replacement rate to keep uh, uh, the population sustained. This view of children is very different than the Bible. The Bible, in its opening page, says God made humanity, and he's, what do he say to them? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with children who love me and who love each other. Disciple these children. And Jesus affirms the importance of having children here in this passage as he celebrates them. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the role of children, the importance of children in our community, in our families, in our ministry, in our life together. And I want to highlight four truths from our Lord this morning. So, four truths on children. The first is this. Children are a priority in Jesus' kingdom. The first thing is that children are a priority in Jesus' kingdom. I, I want you to just hear these words real slowly that Jesus says. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. As Christians... The way that we should look at children when we see them, we should see Christ in them. Which, by the way, says a lot about, even if you don't have children, there's a lot of children running around here. Do you know any of their names? Have you ever talked to them? Anytime we serve a child, we make them laugh, we make them feel loved. Jesus says we are receiving him. We will be commended for it. And, you know, this, this is an important thing in, to say in our culture. I was just, uh, this last week I was down at a meeting with some pastors down in Seattle, and one of the pastors was talking about a, a statistic that in Seattle there's more dogs than children. And he was saying that, uh, some of you might know that statistic, but um, he was saying that it's very obvious, you know, when you go to a coffee shop, how 
people care for their dogs and how much attention and devotion they give to their dogs. And, and yet the way that they view their children is very different. The, the children are kind of an annoyance. And if you, people who don't have children and you bring your children into the coffee shop and they're trying to focus and do their work and the children are you know, making noise and stuff like that. And uh, chil- people are frustrated with children. And, it's, and it, actually, you know, that's, it's not simply um, that, that children you know, don't act like adults and they can be an annoyance to us. But also, you know, I have a neighbor, it's a big bumper sticker that says uh, that we should save the planet by stop having children. You know, small families save the planet and, you know, I have my five kids and we're walking by their house and I'm sure he's <laughs> looking at it like, you're the ones, you know, you're the ones who have all those kids. And uh, that's why I got the bumper stickers for you. And, uh, and so what's going to happen, what that means for us as Christians is when we have Jesus' view of children, we are going to be a counterculture. We are going to be very different than the culture around us. People are going to look at us differently. And it's going to affect how we view certain things. And it, one thing in particular, an obvious one, I think would be our view of motherhood. The role of, of a women, a women in society, that is going to affect, when we value children, it's going to affect the role of women in their, in their families and their homes. And um, now, let me just say, the Bible does not say anywhere that a woman cannot have a career, a woman cannot work. It definitely does not say anything about that women are not as good at things as men are. I mean, there's nothing like that. It's absurd. But the Bible does say things like this. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. The Bible does celebrate the work of managing a home and caring for children and says that this is honoring to the Lord, that this is beautiful, and it should be celebrated in the church. And, uh, you know, Many people do not view that kind of work, managing a home and nurturing children, as something uh, to be celebrated. Um, you know, we think in our world that there's something narrow, you know, menial about that kind of work, and which is an incredibly odd thing to say that the raising of a child, the forming of a human being, is menial work. I mean, you know, if you work at BP, I'm sorry, but, you know, imagine I work at BP or I form a human being. Like, what's oil or the human being? What's more important? Sorry, the human's more important. That is an incredibly, and, and, and it's an incredibly broad labor. I mean, the number of skills that you need in order to raise a child are so vast. You know, uh, G.K. Chester, he's got a great book on this called What's Wrong with the World. It's got a f- some of my favorite chapters anywhere. And Chesterton describes the home as like this mini kingdom. It's so, you know, when you go out into the world and you go out into the workforce, you're a slave to the people you work for. You know, you've got, you're on a time clock, you've got to work, you've got to do what your boss says, but it's in the home where you're like kings and queens and you make laws and uh, you're making this little civilization on your little plot of land. And this is, this is what Chesterton says about motherhood. I love this. To be Queen Elizabeth within a definite area, deciding sales, banquets, labors, and holidays, to be 
Whitley within a certain area, providing toys, boots, sheets, cakes, and books, to be Aristotle within a certain area, teaching morals, manners, theology, and hygiene. I can understand how this might exhaust the mind, but I cannot imagine how it could narrow it. How can it, how can it be that a, uh, how can it be a large career to tell other people's children about the rule of three and a small career to tell one's own children about the universe? How can it be broad to be the same thing to everyone and narrow to be everything to someone? No, a woman's function is laborious, but because it is gigantic, not because it is minute. I will pity Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task. I will never pity her for its smallness. This is a huge work. To train one person about the universe means you need to know about the whole universe. You need to be incredibly skilled. And it is, and Jesus says, this is an incredibly important work. And so if we say something like, you know, motherhood is drudgery, well, if you mean by drudgery that it's exhausting, at the end of the day, you're going to be wiped out and you're, you've used every last inch of your wisdom and, uh, and energy to pour into these children, yes, it is drudgery. But if you mean by drudgery that it's menial or it's meaningless or it's unimportant or it's narrow, I, I can't imagine anything more absurd that you could possibly say about any work anywhere in the world that could be more important than the formation of a child. And so in this regard, as Christians, we are going to be radically countercultural and yet as plain as day. And Jesus calls us to this because children are a priority in Jesus' kingdom. And, um, you know, that book that I was mentioning about how civilizations die, one of the things that he points out about um, the statistics of fertility rates is that without question, it's religious people who have children. And the reason is, is because having children you only have children if you have a purpose beyond yourself. And having children requires a tremendous amount of sacrificial love, that my life is not for me, but is I sacrifice my life for the good of another. I sacrifice my comfort, I sacrifice my wealth, I sacrifice uh, my energy, all of who I am for another. And this is the heart of what it is to have children, of course, is sacrificial love. And that's the mark of everything that we are as Christians, is sacrificial love that should define us. And so um, we have to ask, what is our view of children? Now, I, I, I have to say there, does this mean children are priority in Jesus' kingdom? Does that mean that only people who have children or only mothers are really doing Jesus' work? Or honoring Jesus' priority here? And, and no, I, I, I know that many of you, you, maybe you're single, maybe you don't have a family, maybe you don't have children. This is very broad, though. Who are the children that we should be receiving? Well, it certainly starts with the children here. But, you know, uh, we're talking about starting a tutoring program next fall with Birchwood Elementary right next door. Uh, many single-parent homes, many broken homes. It's a Title I school. Uh, and... We're going to bring kids into our, into our church to care for them and to teach them. That might be a place where you say, you know, I need to be a part of that. I need to receive the children as Jesus commanded me. We also have a number of families that are getting involved with foster care. They're either uh, getting licensed to do foster care or going to be a support to other families who are doing foster care. You might say, that's something that I need to be a part of. 
This is not just something that families do. This is something we do as Jesus' people is, is loving his priority for children in his kingdom. But what this also means is that if, if children are priority, if they are precious to Jesus, things that are precious to us, we protect. And this is the second thing we learn in this passage, is that children need to be protected from the world. Children need to be protected from this world. And um, Jesus says this in about the starkest possible words, verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown into the depths of the sea. I mean, I love this way Jesus talks. You mess with a little child, you should be drowned, you know? It's like, wow, gentle Jesus, you know, drowning people here. And uh, harsh words. And, um, but the reason Jesus is saying that is that he understands that our children are living in a world that wants to destroy them. In a world that has evil everywhere. That can destroy their souls, dis- destroy their minds, destroy their bodies, destroy the, way that, the ways they think and view themselves and view God. And, you know, one of the reasons why I think this point's important, that, uh, that children need to be protected from the world, is because I know for me, and, and for many of us in, in our generation, I, I don't want to be a weird Christian, you know, I, and I actually often talk about that in our church, that we're not going to be a subculture from, you know, we're going to go out into the world, we're going to know our neighbors, we're going to build relationships with non-Christians, we're going to rub shoulders with them, and we're not building a subculture that's isolated from the world. And so, you know, I want people to, you know, meet me and say, oh, you know, you're a Christian, you know, you seem so normal and stuff like that. And, and so as a result, though, as we've embraced that, we tend to send our children uh, into the world because we want to be a part of the world. We don't want to be isolated from them. And I sympathize with this, but Jesus says that there's a possibility that we could cause our children to stumble or that others could cause them to stumble. And he warns us against that. And so what kinds of errors can we make that cause our children to stumble? Well, one of the things that the Apostle Paul says in a couple of places in his letters is that we, there's a possibility we can embitter our children. That he, he has an understanding that it's possible to grow up in a Christian home where there's just so much pressure put on you. There, there's uh, so much expectation that it is just frustrating. You know, there's no grace, there's no love, there's no laughter. And if we find that there's no, there's no sense of joy in our home, that is going to be frustrating from our, to our children, and they're going to want to run away from the church and run away, run away from God and run away from the Bible. And so he says, on the one hand, we need to guard against that. But also, we need to understand that the world is filled with assault. It is filled with people who are assaulting other people, both verbally, emotionally, physically. And it's also filled with a a world of people that are withdrawing relationally. So it's possible for our children to grow up with a constant experience of being assaulted and then people withdrawing from them. Assaulted and withdrawing from them. And never growing up in the nurture of of love. And, uh, you know, the time that this kind of hit me, I, I was reading this last year a book by Dallas Willard. And uh, called the renovation of the heart, and this is what this is the way he describes this the effect of assault and withdrawal on a child, and it really hit me. I mean, this is a little longer passage, but I'm going to read it to you again because it's it's really it's really important. This is what he says: 
The spiritual malformation of children is the inevitable result. Their little souls, bodies, and minds cannot but absorb the reality of assault and withdrawal in a climate where their parents and other adults are constantly engaged in them. Their only hope of survival is to become hardened. This amounts to a constant posture of withdrawal, even from oneself. It is a defensive posture, which incidentally makes attack on others and on oneself easy and inevitable. Hardened, lonely little souls ready for addiction, aggression, isolation, self-destructive behavior, and for some, even extreme violence, go out to mingle their madness with one another in nightmarish school grounds and communities. The wonder is not that they sometimes destroy one another, but that the adults who produce them and live with them can, with apparent sincerity, ask why. Do they really not know? Can they really not see the poison in the social realm? When we see kids as precious we need to be aware of the assault that can potentially happen to them and be involved and engaged in that. Now, let me just tell you, as many of you know, one of those primary evils that's present in our world is, is of course, the view of sexuality in our culture. And um, at younger and younger ages, that kids are being exposed uh, to pornography. And, you know, the, you know, they've done surveys on the amount of uh, knowledge that, that middle schoolers have about sex that is probably far beyond most of us in this room, the, the average middle schooler. And um, they're being introduced to it. And actually, I, just, I was listening to a talk uh, this last week by Dan Allender where he said that uh, 15% of fourth graders have experienced oral sex. 15%. And he was saying, you know, if you, that, what that means is that if you uh, are planning to start talking to your kids about sex when they're thir- 12 or 13, he says, this is, these are his words, he says, you're a fool. It's way too late. You should be starting to talk to them when they're 5, 6, 7, 8. That's when you should start be talking to them. And you better have something to say. You better have thought through this. What do I think about sexuality? The good, and not just that sexuality is bad, but the goodness of what God intended for sexuality. And am I prepared to talk about it? And all of these things, the reality of the world that we're, we're living in, this is something that we just, as a church, we need to be able to talk to one another about how do we do this? How do we protect our kids? And listen, I know that in, in the different families of our church, it's going to look different. But this should be an open dialogue, and we should be resolved that this is part of Jesus' calling for us as a church. And so we have to protect our children from the world. But... There's an error that can go with that. I think many Christians for generations have thought, oh yeah, I know, of course I need to protect my kids from the world. But there's another error, and Jesus hits on it here in verse 7, because he says, he says this, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by, by whom the temptation comes. So Jesus says, listen, the world is going to be filled with temptations, but he also says it is necessary that temptations come. Which is to say, don't be kidding yourself that because you are in a church and your kids are growing up in a Christian home that they're going to be protected from the world because guess what? The world is not something that's out there. The world is something that's in here. 
it's in our children. It's in each one of them. They have the sinful nature. They already have all those desires. It's already within them. You can't, you can't shield them. You can't protect them from it. It's inside of them. And so what that means is that there's a third thing that Jesus is going to teach us about children. Not, it's not just enough to protect them from the world, but the third thing, and I, this is something I've been personally, the Lord's been teaching me about, is that children must be taught repentance. Children must be trained in repentance. And listen carefully what I mean by this, um, because I think one of the most important things for us to realize as parents is that the children that are growing up in our church are sinners just like us. They are sinners like us. All of us, we're struggling with sin and anger and all these things that are inside of us. That same thing is happening inside of our children. And so as we think about how does my life change, how do I grow in my faith, that should be informing how our children grow in faith. And the answer for how we grow in our faith is through repentance. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Um, Look at what Jesus says here. Look at this paragraph down, um, starting in verse 10. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is a mysterious line from Jesus where he says that apparently the children that are growing up in the church each have their little angels that are guarding them and talking to God about them. It's a great, beautiful uh, thought. And then, and then skipping down to verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So there's these two verses about God guarding the Christian children. And then in between these two verses, Jesus puts a parable, though. It's really interesting. Look at what the parable is. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. Jesus is talking about Christian children here, and the image he gives is of sheep going astray and then being brought back in by the shepherd, which I think says to me that there's some expectation that Jesus has that all of our children, to some degree, are going to go astray. Of course they will. They're sinners. They're going to turn away. Now, that doesn't mean they're all going to leave the faith or leave the church, or, but to varying degrees, all of our children, just like us, are sinners who need to be brought back in by the shepherd. Which, by the way, I do think this verse, some of you may have children that have strayed. And here, in the midst of Jesus talking about children, the picture that he gets is, is that one sheep that's gone astray, and the shepherd goes and gets it. And he says there's more celebration when that sheep comes back. This should be a text to, to, to guide you as you pray to the Lord and say, Lord, make good on this. This is who you are. You go get the lost sheep. But what this tells us is if we expect that our kids are sinners and they're going to have a tendency to go, go astray from the Lord, then the main thing we need to be teaching them is not stop being bad and start being good, which is generally what parenting looks like. Here's the good thing. Why can't you just do the good thing? And as they don't do the good thing, we get more and more angry and frustrated that they're not doing what we want and we can't control our family, we can't control our children. And what does that do? What does that do as we get more frustrated? Does that soften their hearts? It hardens their hearts. How how do you respond when someone does that to you? Do you become soft to someone who's hard on you? 
Does your heart soften to them? And, you know, I'm going to just tell you this personally. I've been reading uh, Proverbs, which Proverbs has a lot about disciplining children. It also has a lot about anger in it. These are a couple that have been striking me as a parent. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Another one. The man of wrath stirs up strife. That one hit me. If my children are fighting with each other, how much is my anger stirring up that strife? The man of wrath stirs up strife, and the one given to anger causes much transgression. What we have to realize is when we're expecting our kids, you need to be good, we're not acknowledging that they're sinners. And just like you and me, if, if someone just says to you, stop being selfish, stop being bitter, stop being envious, do you just stop? No. What changes you is the gospel. And repentance is a process. It's not just something you do. Repentance looks like, first of all, I need to acknowledge my sin and realize that what I'm doing is sinful and confess it to the Lord and feel contrite about that and find out that he is gracious to sinners. And then, as I confess that to the Lord, I say, Lord, I need a supernatural power within me to fill me with love, to love my siblings, to love my parents, to obey my parents. I need your supernatural power to work in me. That's the only way I can do it. And that's true for you as an adult. That's true for them as children. And what's going to happen is they grow up in a Christian home. Sin is going to come up every day. And the process of repentance is not something that just happens once. It becomes a whole lifestyle that we're doing as adults and that our children are learning to do it in a Christian context as the gospel begins to shape their relationships. And so this is the question that we need to ask. What softens the hearts of our children Romans 2 says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so the law is there to make us aware of our sin, but it will never change our hearts. And so I, I think this is something for us to think about. How do we envision, what do we envision for our, our kids' lives? You know, what's the end goal? When we think of raising our kids and we're going to send them out of our homes and they grow up, what do we want them to be? Do we want them to be good Christian boys and girls who don't do bad things? If we get that, they will be self-righteous, proud, pharisaical, good boys and girls who don't do bad things. Because there's no such thing as good boys and girls who don't do bad things. What we want is them to be aware that they're sinners and they've found the grace of Jesus that has humbled them that has made them loving, and then we send them out into the world, and what are they going to do? They're going to meet all kinds of sinners out in the world, and they're going to love them, and they're going to be generous with them, and they're going to be kind to them, and they're going to hold on to Jesus because they know how lost they are without him. It's because they're aware of their sin. This is the goal, and this is the thing that they should have a whole childhood growing up in, not that God loves good children and doesn't like bad children. That's the wrong message. And so the only way for us to do this, to train our children this way, is that we need to know the fourth thing that Jesus tells us in this passage is that children have real faith. Children have real faith. And this is a a conviction of ours in our church, is that when a little child, whether they're two or three or four, when they tell us that they love Jesus, we do not say to them, I'm not sure you're old enough. I'm not sure you really understand what you're saying. Uh, You're just saying that to make me happy as your parent. We don't do that. When a child says they love Jesus, 
we say, you're right. And that's because the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart teaching you about God's love and changing you. And God is at work in your life. And, uh, and the reason we do that is because of chapter 19, verses 13 and 15. Here, this is what Jesus says. Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. We will not hinder our children from coming to Jesus. And we're going to encourage them. When they say they believe in Jesus, we're going to say that's because God's at work in you. And so that the main experience that they have of what it means to be a Christian is not that I do good things for God, but that God has been gracious and kind to me. He's pursued me even as a sinner. And he's come after me. He's kept me in his home. And that's the message that they should be hearing over and over through their childhood is you are in. You don't have to prove to us that you're spiritual enough to be in. You're in. And being in, then you're going to grow. And when we do that, let me just, this is my closing comment. When we view our children that way, parenting becomes what, that we are on the same journey with our children. We are both sinners who are saved by grace. And our kids should see in us that we're, we're struggling with our anger and we're struggling with, you know, being selfish and wanting to be in control. And they see that repentance is a part of our daily life. And that repentance is the thing that humbles us and brings us to our children to admit our faults. And then we're training them as they're being selfish and angry and fighting with one another and they humble themselves and they ask for forgiveness. And they see that reconciliation is the whole lifestyle, the whole experience. And so as they grow up, they would say, you know, my family, we're a bunch of sinners. I know that. But the Bible... Jesus, he was our only hope. He's the one who made peace. He was the only reason there was any love in that home. And when they experience that, are they going to run away? Well, they may wander away. Jesus says that. They may. They're going to be a lot less likely to run away from that than um, from the hard and harsh words that stir up, stir up anger. So let me just encourage you as parents. I know that for many of you, you're struggling and uh, God is with you. And the same grace that I'm calling you to give to your children, God gives to you because you're his children. And so embrace that this morning and, and find hope in him. Let's pray together.